Hello and welcome back to the Fire Fragrance Podcast. Today we have Daniel sharing more about missions as he shares with us some stories from the DRC. Let's jump right in. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so when we were living in Kansas City, I took a team to the Congo and um, we did this two-week school of prayer. And it was in this city called Goma, a city of about a million people. And, um, and it was amazing. We just rented this big house. We're all staying in there, about 40 leaders. And we invited leaders, whoever we could get in touch with from the war zone, to come down if they could. And a bunch of them risked their lives to come and travel to the city. And um, we spent two weeks praying, worshiping. And it was absolutely amazing. And um, then there was this one man from a little village in the war zone, uh, called Kalembe, and he, a short guy, super fiery, an old man always praying for revival, and he would always cry out to God for another Pentecost in his village, and uh, I love that guy, and uh, towards the end of the two weeks, he, uh, he wanted to talk to me, and we sit down, and he said, Daniel, can you come and visit my village, uh, like after the, the, the school is over, this two weeks, and I said, I would love to visit your village, that would be so fun to me. Um, let me talk to Mboto, my contact that I went with the, the, uh, in the story that I told you guys yesterday. And um, so I sit down with Mboto and I said, Mboto, is there any way that we can go um, to the village of Kalembe and visit this, <clears throat> the revival guy? And um, he said, well, <laughs> we didn't go. I mean, we barely made it out last time. He said, but we can do it if you want to. And um, so we, we, we talked and prayed about it. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Sam. Sam's great. And um, so what we did is we, um, my wife and kids were there as well, and we sent them on to, um, to travel to uh, Uganda and to Kenya. And uh, I stayed behind with a few guys, three guys from Kansas City. And um, we, took the, we rented this four-wheel drive, and um, Boto and I and these three guys, we went to Kalembe after this, this two-week gathering. And uh, it was going to be about two-day drive. Again, we couldn't call ahead. We didn't know what we would find because there's no network, no cell phone coverage. And um, so we just started driving and um, drove for one day, spent the night in some little village somewhere, and then drive again another day on the worst road I've ever been on in my life. And, uh, but it was fun and adventurous. And it's beautiful there. And um, finally, after two days driving, now it's like Saturday afternoon, we get into the village of Kalembe. We make it. We didn't see any rebels. It was awesome. We get into the village, and all of a sudden, it was crazy. There were soldiers everywhere. Again, some soldiers were drunk. They're yelling. They started throwing stones at us, and many of them were just totally out of their mind. And um, people were running around, and people with, like, bags full of stuff. Others were digging holes in the ground. And I was like, what in the world's going on over here? And then uh, we asked, we talked to people and it turned out that there was a rebel group advancing and they had taken one village, another village, and now the army was fighting them just past the, outside the village as these rebels are approaching this village of Kalembe. And so in the village, people were fleeing. The, with their, they're grabbing their belongings, they're leaving. Um, then there's other people who had fled from the other two villages that were there. And it was just crazy because there's like a father that was looking for a child, uh, uh, a mother looking for her husband. And because uh, they all fled in the panic of this attack by these rebel soldiers. And um, 
And I asked him about but why are people digging holes in the ground? And he said, because they're burying their belongings in case the rebels come and attack them that they won't steal their stuff. And so it was just crazy from the start. And um, we're there, we're staying in the, in the house of this pastor. And um, it's Saturday, late afternoon that we're there. And that evening, I'm talking to one of the guys on our team. And um, I told him about these dreams that I'd been having. And in the months leading up to this trip, I had several dreams. I mean, one dream several times. And I'm not a guy that gets a lot of dreams of the Lord. I've had a handful, but, but this was one of them. And I had this dream. And in the dream, there's this little girl. And I knew she was Congolese. And she was surrounded by men armed and who were clearly intent on doing her harm. And in the dream, I step in, I take the girl in my arms, and I walk her to safety. And that's what, that was the dream. And I wake up, and there's this sense of the Lord's presence, a sense of adoption. And, and um, I, I feel like it's from the Lord, but I don't know what the dream means. So in the morning, I tell my wife, and uh, she doesn't know what it meant. And, uh, but then a few weeks later, again, I have the exact same dream. Again, it wakes me up. And then a few weeks later, later again. And so now Marlise and I were talking. We're like, gosh, Lord, what are you saying? Is, is, is there just a message from you in this dream? And we even started talking like maybe the Lord wants us to adopt a girl from the Congo or something. We, we just didn't know. And um, so now I'm there in the Congo in this village on this Saturday evening. And I'm telling my friend these dreams that I've been having. And I said, I'm not sure what these dreams mean. But then I said, maybe. Maybe God wants me to rescue a little girl from rebel soldiers. How amazing would that be? And he's like, yeah, maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> he said, maybe the girl just represents a, a, a people group or a village or, or a geographic area that God, in a sense, wants to you to adopt in prayer. I said, oh, that doesn't quite sound as cool, but maybe. Anyways, we talked about it, but we didn't figure it out. We didn't, we didn't figure out what the dream really meant. And um, so... The night I go to bed in Sunday morning, and there were two churches in that village. And so my friend who I shared the dreams with the previous night before, he, um, he's going to speak at the church that, of the pastor where we were sleeping. And then on the other side of the village was the church of the revival pastor that I wanted to go to. And uh, I was going to speak there. And so in the morning, Boats and I would get ready, and um, we we're going to walk through the village to the other side. So we get outside, and the sun's just blazing, and it's hot, and I'm so white. I get sunburned so quickly. So I'm standing outside there, and um, I, I'm reaching for my sunscreen lotion, and immediately I see, notice kids coming to run, like running towards me, yelling, laughing, pointing at me because they never see a white guy, and they're so excited. And um, so I'm standing there, and I'm putting on sunscreen lotion. All the kids are, like, really looking. I'm sure one of them thought, that's why he's white. <laughs> They've got some white lotion. And uh, anyways, all these kids are looking and they're yelling. And um, both and I, we start walking through the village and more and more kids come. And they're all yelling, Mzungu, Mzungu, which means white guy, which is me, right? And, uh, and then the other thing all the kids did is they were all sticking up their thumbs like this. And I'd never seen that before anywhere in East Africa. But all the kids did it. They're all like, Mzungu, Mzungu, like this. So I asked him, Boto, why are they sticking up their thumbs? And he said, oh, they got that from the, the UN soldiers that passed through. They always go like this, like we're the good guys. And I was like, all right, great. So I'm like this to all the kids. And um, so they're all laughing and yelling, but they're also kind of scared. And so like, if I turn around, the kids are like, oh, you know. And then one, uh, one older kid pushes a, a, a small kid towards me. 
And the kid comes right in front of me, looks at me, and just starts crying, screaming, and runs away. All the kids laughing. It was that kind of atmosphere. And so they're in like this circle. And so I'm walking. It's 10 kids, 20 kids, 30 kids. Like it's just so many children. They'll come running out of their huts and yelling. And they're so excited. And, um, and all like, they're all like, zungu, zungu. So I'm about to, we walk through the village. It's about 10 minutes to get to the other side. And um, we're there on the other side near the church and uh, walking on this dirt path. And all of a sudden, I noticed this one little girl standing there, maybe 20 or 30 yards or meters in front of me on the, on, on the dirt road uh, where I'm walking. We're standing right there in the middle. And um, I'm walking with, you know, this group of kids around us towards, uh, towards the church and the girl standing there. And um, the girl sees me. And she doesn't yell Mzungu uh, uh, at all. And she doesn't stick up her thumbs. She sees me and she says, Daniel. And she comes running towards me. And it's the girl I saw in my dreams. And she comes running towards me. And right through the circle of all the kids that were around us. And comes up to me and just grabs me. And puts her head against my stomach. And just really affectionately just holds me. And I cannot believe what's happening. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And I turn to Mboto. I said, Mboto, did you hear that? Did she say my name? And he's like, yeah. And I said, how, how, how does she know me? And he said, I don't know. She can't. We've never been to this region. And I'm standing there in the dirt, and I'm like, this is so crazy. This is so crazy. What's going on? And I'm just holding this girl, and we just stand there. And uh, then after a while, the girl, she looks up, and she gives me this beautiful smile, and then she ran off, and I never saw her again. I cannot explain that to you. I cannot explain that to you. So then we keep walking. We get to the church, and uh, we're in the church, and the revival guy's there, the pastor. And, uh, and it was just an amazing service. Everybody was just going crazy. They had all these drummers, and we're just praying, crying out for revival, and uh, just an amazing time there in the church. And then afterwards, we're, we, um, we, we gather back with the team, the other guys who were in the other church, and um, Mboto, he's saying, guys, I, I think we need to leave the village ASAP. He said, it's not safe. The rebels are advancing. Um, it, we think the army can probably not hold them back, and so they'll come here. And he said, we should leave. And um, so we grab our stuff again and, and say goodbye to the people. We were just there for a day. And um, then we, we start driving again. And um, we leave the village of Kalembe. We drive one day, because again, now it's going to be two days' drive back to Goma, the city where we, where we had done the two-week conference. And so we're driving back one day, and we spent the night at the village. And um, over there, our phones start working again, and the phones just blow up. And um, Boats is like, Daniel, i got to talk to you. we got a situation. I said, well, what is it? He said, there is a different rebel group. They've been advancing from the north towards the city of Goma. And um, they've made it to the edge, and people in the city are afraid they're going to attack the city. And that's the city where we're going. And um, the way it was, is, it's situated geograph uh, geographically is the city is here, and then it's right on the border. So next to the city is the border with Rwanda. So the city lies on the border, a city of about a million people. And under the city is a huge lake, and north of the city is the war zone. And so this rebel group had come from the north, and we were also in the north, but a bit more on this side. He said, just meet me before you go, and we'll connect, and I'll give you any latest information I have. I said, okay. So I hang up the phone, and uh, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is, this is bad news. So I go to Marlise, and Marlise, I talked to the Somali expert. He said, we're both going to die in Mogadishu. He's sure of it. And Marlise said, all right, got to pray. So she goes to her office. She goes praying. 
I sit on the couch in our living room for an hour. And then Marlise comes out. Her face is just beaming. She's like, Daniel, God gave me a promise for the city. We have to go. She's just so full of faith. And I just spent an hour meditating on how I was going to die next week. <laughs> and, and I thought I should have probably also prayed. <laughs> and uh, I had to catch up with my wife. And uh, so the week goes by. We decide we're still going to go. And, and, and we really thought about this. We, we, I mean, we, we weren't afraid. We were sober. And we really talked about this. Like, hey, we... This could be it. This could be the last trip. I mean, according to this guy, this, we're gonna, he was certain that we would die in Mogadishu. So there's no way you can make it out alive. And so we talked about it. And, we, and it sounds crazy. Maybe we just came to the conclusion we were okay with it. We thought we've had a great life. And, but our heart's there. Somebody has to go. And we thought we're okay with it if that's our last trip. And, uh, but it was, and it was so real so that my wife, she wrote a last letter to her parents just to thank them and honor them. She loves her parents. And she wrote a last email to her best friend just to kind of thank her. And um, I didn't write anybody. I don't have any friends. No, just kidding. <laughs> so sad. No, but I didn't write to anybody. So we go, it's a week later. We go to the capital city, and uh, we meet with the Somali expert. We're going to fly that night. We meet with him over lunch. And he said, you guys still going? He said, yeah, we're still going. He's like, okay. He said, let me call a contact that I have in Mogadishu. And um, so he calls and he, um, he asks in English, hey, what's the latest, what's the situation in Mogadishu right now? And um, he puts this phone on speaker and lays it down. And the guy on the other end from Mogadishu said, oh, it's not good. He said, actually, just last night, one of the most best-known peace activists in the city was killed. And rioting has broken out. He said, it's really unstable right now in the city. There's a bunch of fighting going on. And he said, it's not a good time. And, um, and, and the Somali expert, he's like, okay, great, thanks. And he hangs up the phone, and he's like, well, there you have it. And he basically says, good luck. But again, he's like, if, but if God sends you, you should go and obey. But still, he's convinced we're not going to come back. So we finish with him, and we go to the airport. And Marlisa and I are there. We're, we check in for our flight. And we felt so out of place. We're obviously, we're the only white people. Nobody came any bear close to our skin color. And uh, all these Somali people are there, and they're all covered up. The women completely covered, just showing their eyes. These men with these big beards and just intense-looking people. And they're all staring at Marlisa and me. We're just standing there in our shorts, T-shirts, like checking in for a flight like we're going to Ibiza or whatever. And uh, so we're there checking in, and the lady who's checking us in, she said, wow, you're very brave to go to Mogadishu. I said, yeah, thanks. I didn't feel brave at all. My wife was brave. I just said, I don't feel brave at all. And then we check in, then we go to customs. They check our passport. And again, the person is like, you're going to Mogadishu? You're very brave. I was like, yeah, thanks. Then we go to our gate, and we're waiting to get onto the plane. And the plane, it looked like this really old propeller plane, and the crew was a Russian crew. And if you've flown a bit, then you know, like, when you wait by the gate before you board the plane, that you, if you come a little bit early, at some point the crew comes and they walk past you and they get on the plane first to kind of settle in, maybe clean or whatever. The, the, the pilot gets the cockpit ready and everything. And so Marlies and I were sitting there with people that are supposed to be on the flight and the crew comes walking past. And you know how the pilot, he'll have like one roller case and then very often one like smaller bag on top of that, always black. And so, so the crew, they come walking by and, and I spot the, the pilot the pilot is not carrying any luggage. He doesn't have a suitcase. He is literally, I'm not joking, he's literally walking like this with bottles of liquor. That's how he's walking onto the plane, just hugging liquor. 
And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this Russian crew, I don't know if we can trust them. That's not a good sign. He only brought drinks, no luggage. And uh, so they get on the plane. Then finally it's time for us to board. We get on the plane, and it's like the oldest plane, and everything is broken. Like my chair is just like this. The, the back seat just doesn't go up. The tray tables are hanging loose. I mean, everything just looks broken and old on this plane. And um, anyways, we start flying. The plane's going, shaking. And then two guys come out in overalls, or right? like uh, working clothes, like aprons or whatever, whatever you call them, with tools. And they start walking out. They start fixing things on the plane. And I cannot believe this. And so I, I said, these, these guys look like me mechanics. And, uh, and so I, I tap one of the guys as he walks out. I said, are you a mechanic? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fixing the plane. I'm like, thank you, as we're flying. And uh, so then we're traveling. And... Um, about halfway the flight, all of a sudden, the lady in front of me, she just stands up, she jumps up, she turns around, and she yells at us. And she says, what the beep are you going to do at Mogadishu? And we're like, we had rehearsed our answer. We said, we're with the NGO there to assess the needs, build relationships, and see how we can help in the future. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so then she just sits down again. And we're like, oh my gosh, this is so intense. And so then the plane lands, and it's, there's no public airport. It's just a, it's a private airstrip of a warlord. That's where you land. And um, so we land on this airstrip of this warlord just outside of Mogadishu. And uh, people start getting off the plane. And this is like the big moment, right? Like as we get off the plane, is the guy from the hotel going to be there? Or are we going to die here at the airport? And so we get off the plane. And, and we start looking around, and then all of a sudden this guy waves at us because he saw us, right? He's like, come here, I got you, and it was the manager, and I was so happy that he actually came. And he said, I've got you, and then, you know how at airports you, like when, when you get into a country, they, you know, you go through customs, they put the stamp in your passport. So over there in Mogadishu, they don't actually give you a stamp. What you have to do is you got to take your passport one page, hold it up, and they shoot a hole through your page. No, just kidding, but they should. <laughs> they should, actually. That'd be awesome, right? They should do that. They didn't do that. They didn't do that. You just pay the guy, the warlord. He, just, he collects $10 from everybody, and that's it. So anyways, give the guy $10, 20 for the two of us. And we go to the hotel manager. And he's like, come here, come here. And he's got there. He's got a car with all black windows so that nobody could see us. And he had a pickup truck. They call them technicals or the Somali tanks. And it's this big pickup truck with a huge mounted machine gun on the back that somebody stands behind and shoots the really big bullets. And uh, so that was our escort. And then we had another five or six guys with guns and bullets strapped all around them to protect us. They were our security, $300 a day. And um, so we drive, they take us to the, uh, to the hotel. We get there at the hotel and we didn't know any of this, but at that moment, the people were actually busy with their 13th attempt to establish the government and they're having conversations. And they had gathered all the key people in the nation to have the conversations right there in that hotel where we were staying. And they had over 200 security guards around the hotel. It was the most heavily guarded place in the nation. And all these, and we were just right there in the middle and all the people in the hotel were people that were warlords, former politicians, key business people, all the key people of the nation were all gathered there to have conversations to see if they could reestablish a functioning central government in Somalia. Again, we were right there in the middle of all these people and it was just amazing. We didn't know. And so we're there and of course, we're, again, we're the only white people and everybody's looking at us and, and people are all the time asking us questions. And it was amazing, we could meet so many people. And so one day this lady comes up to us and said, hey, do you wanna meet General Morgan? I said, I, 
Yeah, I, I said, I don't know who General Morgan is. She said, you don't know General Morgan? I was like, no, sorry. I said, oh, he's one of the most feared warlords in our nation. And um, he's called the Butcher of Hargeisa. And Hargeisa is a city in the north. He once led an attack and killed 80,000 people in that city in one day. Called him the Butcher of Hargeisa. One of the most feared warlords. I don't know if, has any of you guys seen that movie, um, shit, what's, uh, uh, Black Hawk Down? It's a little bit rough, like a war movie, but it's a true story, and it happens in Mogadishu. It's not filmed there, but it happens in Mogadishu. It was in 1994 when um, the, the UN was there, the Americans, and it became later a UN mission, and Somali rebels, they, or, or, or people of militia, they shot down a Black Hawk helicopter. And the body of the pilot, he was killed, he was dragged through the city. It, went, it was on TV all over the world. And, um, <clears throat> but anyways, the, the guy who shot down the helicopter in 1994, he was an instant national hero, right? Instant national hero. And he had a daughter, and his daughter was the prized woman in the nation for any man to marry. And General Morgan is the one who married his daughter. And uh, so the, the, the lady there in, ho- in the hotel, she's like, would you want to meet General Morgan? I said, I would love to meet General Morgan. I said, all right. And so she sets it up, and we go to his hotel room. There's security guards, and they let us in, and we sit there, Merle Snyder, and, and we meet with General Morgan. And he's there, long beard, super intense-looking guy. And, um, and we say, well, we're with a, a development organization. We're here to assess the needs, build relationships, see how we can help, and blah, blah, blah. Give my little speech. And, um, and then we, we have a conversation, and, it's been, and it was actually a great conversation. And he's talking about his country, and he just wants to take over the country, and all, whatever. And uh, we talk a little bit about us, and um, just pl- fairly pleasant conversation, actually. After, and afterwards, at the end, he gives me his email address. And it's literally, it's jenmorgan at yahoo.com. <laughs> so awesome. If you ever you want to shoot the guy an email, go ahead. Say hi. And... <laughs> And so we're there for days in the hotel. We're meeting all these people. And um, I meet this one guy, and I was always quick to say that I'm from the Netherlands because they have a particular hatred against Americans for various reasons. And uh, so I was always quick to say I'm from the Netherlands. And um, I tell this one man, and he said, oh, Netherlands. He said, my wife and children, they live in the Netherlands. I said, what? He said, yeah, they've got refugee status. They live there, and I'm still here. And I said, well, I still go to the Netherlands regularly. If you want, I can bring them something for you, even just your greetings. But I'd be happy if you, if you want me to bring something to your family. I'd love to do that. I'm going to be there in a few months if I live. And, uh, and, he, and he's like, no, he loved it. So he went to back to his hotel room, comes back and gives me this whole stack of pictures, photos of, of him and stuff he's doing. And he said, can you give this to my family? And I said, I will. And, and I did. I went a few months later. I was in the Netherlands. I went to the city, the house, the address. And I ring the doorbell. And he himself opens up. At this point, he was also now a refugee in the Netherlands. And I said, here are your pictures back. And he's like, great. But he was so happy. He invites me in. And he's like, come sit and talk. Turns out he was the former vice president of Somalia. And he was just so moved that I would do this. And he said, I-, I want to help you. Any connections, any doors that I can open. He said, I want to help you work in Mogadishu. And so anyways, we're getting all these connections. And it's just amazing. And, uh, but it was a little hard for Marlies because like, all, 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 the, all the men, it was mostly men there. None of them would interact with Marlies. They would just ignore her. It's like she wasn't there. They wouldn't look her in the eyes. They wouldn't shake her hand. They never would. And they just ignored her. So Marlies like, God, what, I'm here, but I, I'm not connecting with anybody. And um, then she saw some two ladies. 
And so she starts talking to them, and they had the, because she was asking, like, Lord, give me a connection with somebody. I want to do something here and, um, and not be invisible. And so she saw these two ladies, and they had the, those the henna paintings on her hands, on her arm. And so she goes up to them, and she compliments them. It looks so beautiful. She said, where can I get that? And the ladies just lit up, and they're like, oh, we can do that. And she's like, would you do that to, on, on my arm, my hand? And she said, yeah. So she makes this appointment, and uh, that evening, the ladies, they're going to come to the hotel room. I wouldn't be there. And they were going to do Merlisa's arm and hand. And um, <clears throat> so that night, the two ladies, and they bring two other ladies. They come, and, uh, Mer- and of course, I was not there. And she said they were in the hotel room. They closed the door, and all the veils came off. And she said they started talking, and they were just painting her hands and have all these conversations, and they could talk about God and prayer and all these things. And it was just an amazing time. And it turned out that those two ladies, they had an organization, and they work with mothers, and uh, they had like this mother and child hospital. And they do a lot of things with women, with uh, uh, FGM, female genital mutilation. So women's circumcision is huge in Somalia, and it's absolutely horrific. And so they help women and um, with all kinds of stuff. And um, so it began this great connect, and they have this organization registered right there in Mogadishu. And um, so then Marisa was talking to them, and then we met with them next day. And uh, they wanted to show us their project, and we went to their, uh, their hospital with all our security and everything. We couldn't walk anywhere on the streets. And um, anyways, long story short, we decided to work with them. I mean, they're all, they're all Muslims. We started to work with them, and we started this project. It was like a, we, started, we opened a tailoring workshop. And um, we, we, we would find women who had a family but no source of income, and we would teach these group of women tailoring. Not me, but Somali women, right? They're teaching them uh, tailoring, and then we give them some startup money to start a business together to generate income for their families. And that became our open door in a way that we could go and travel back and forth to Mogadishu and, and work there. And at the same time, then, of course, have all the conversations about Jesus and life and God and the gospel. And um, so the Lord just opened all these doors, and it was just incredible. And... Um, so we were there in like this heavily secured place, and um, and after four days we left again and we totally made it out alive, obviously, and it was just amazing. And then um, about a year later or so, I wanted to go back in again, and I went with a friend from Kenya, one of our main leaders of our work there. And at this point, the 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 Muslim, the some of the Islamic leaders had become so powerful. And uh, they had established, with the help of these Saudi Arabian mi- uh, missionaries and funding, they had set up these, what they would call Islamic courts. And it was through these courts that they would rule and establish Sharia law in the nation. And, um, and so, the, so the, the warlords and other people, they get, gained less and less influence. And now it's really these Islamic leaders through this network of Islamic courts that were really in charge of the, the nation. And they had a president and a vice president and, um, and, and, uh, of the Islamic courts. And he was basically the president of the nation. He was the most powerful person in the country. And this guy, the president of the Islamic Courts Union, he was a wanted terrorist on the list of the UN as well as the US, a known wanted terrorist. And he was ruling the nation of Somalia. And um, so lots of um, 
uh, they, like there'd be terrorist training camps and lots of Muslim extremism just spreading all over the country. It would be, and everything became so intense. And uh, lots of public executions and people's hands cut off if they did things wrong and beheadings and all kinds of super severe punishments. And these guys were ruling with terror, these Islamic leaders, terrorizing and subduing the, the people by force. And... Um, so then my friend and I, we decided we want to go back to Somalia. And we're there, and uh, that day before we, we fly to Mogadishu, we, um, <clears throat> I was reading a newspaper in Kenya, and there was this uh, article about the president of the Islamic Courts Union in Somalia. And his, his name was Sh- uh, Sheikh Sharif, Sharif Ahmed. And he was this, the wanted terrorist, right, the president basically of Somalia. And there was a picture of him in there. And uh, so I decided to cut out the picture and take it with me because I thought, in case I run into this guy, I want to be able to recognize him. So I just put the picture in my pocket. We fly to Mogadishu. We get to the hotel again. And I call a journalist who I had met on my previous trip because he spoke English and he was always kind of in the know of what was going on. And that's just so important in places like that that you get good information. And uh, so he comes straight to the hotel uh, that same day. And uh, I ask him, so what's the situation in the country, like in the nation, like what's going on and blah, blah. And he tells me all his information. And then I show him the picture of Sharif Shah Ahmed, the president of the Islamic Court Union. And I said, I, th- I thought, let me just try. I said, is there any way that I can meet with him? And um, he said, oh, yeah. He said, him and I, we were roommates. We studied together in Sudan years ago. He said, I know him. He said, I'll reach out and see if I can set up an appointment for, uh, for you. And I said, that'd be great. So he calls back the next day. He said, Daniel, the, the president, he's out of the city somewhere else. He can't meet with you. But he said you can meet with the vice president in their headquarters. And uh, they set up the meeting. And I said, great. And it was so exciting and so scary. And uh, so then the next day, they take me and my friend and then two women, the two women who lead that organization with the mother and child hospital that we work with. The four of us, we go. And they take us to the headquarters of the Islamic Courts Union which is the heart of Muslim extremism in the Horn of Africa and led by wanted terrorists. And so we go in there and they take us into the building and there's all these armed men there, so evil looking, all with their guns, they're all looking at us and we are so out of place. And so they take us into this big concrete building and we go all the way to the top and we get into this office and there the vice president is. Super intense looking guy, long beard. And um, he sits there, and, and we were told that he only speaks Arabic, and we would need a translator. And so these two women that we worked with, they were going to be our translators. And so we're there, and I give him my little speech again, like I always did, right? And then I told him, from my heart, I said, I love your country, and I'm just moved by the needs. And I said, I really what I want is that I want to be a friend to your country and, and, and contribute to it and be helpful however I can. And he's like, yeah, yeah no, that's all good. He said, I, uh, I've spoken to the president. And he said, I've got a letter for you. And he gives us this letter, and it's written permission. We're the only ones in the world who got it. Written permission from the president of the Islamic Courts Union to work in Mogadishu as a Christian organization. Only ones in the world. And it was just incredible. And so I'm like, this is amazing. This is going so well. So we get the letter, and um, we talk a little bit. And then all of a sudden, he said, but there's one thing you have to understand. And I said, what is that? And... And, and as soon as he begins, as he says that, some, like, in the spirit or whatever, just the whole atmosphere changes, shifts in the office. And it gets grip and dark. And he says, you have to understand one thing. He said, Mogadishu is a 100% Islamic city. And then he looks at me and he said, I want you to become a Muslim. 
And then he starts to preach to me and he gets agitated and he gets more and more intense and it just feels so demonic. And again, we had met with warlords, interacted with them, but the spiritual confrontation between me and this guy, it was so intense, just the weight of Islam and Muslim fundamentalism, so much more than the warlords. The warlords were just greedy, materialistic people that build an army and want control and power. But these guys, just the power of Islam and all the demonic activity behind it, it just felt like such a confrontation. And so you could feel the battle, and he just gets more and more agitated and, and intense, and he's preaching, and he gets up and he starts yelling at me, and I'm thinking, this is not going well. And he just gets more and more just mad as he's preaching to me. And I'm thinking, this is, this is not good. I'm, I'm going to die here if this doesn't end. And so I'm praying, like, God, give me something. What do I do? And I get this idea, so I ask, I said, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah. And um, so I tell the translator, I said, can you ask him, I... He wants to rule the country according to Sharia law. And I know he is in charge of this nation. And I said, and I respect him as being, having the authority in this nation. And I said, but I don't understand Sharia law. Help me understand what you're doing. Is there a book that you can recommend to me that helps me understand what you're about? And my translator, she's like, good one, good one. And she translates it. And immediately he comes and shifts the whole atmosphere. He sits down and he calms down. And he's like, yeah, I'll send you a book. And he did actually later. He mailed a book to my house uh, on how to be a good Muslim and all that stuff. Never read it, but it's great. And, <clears throat> but it diffused the whole, the whole tension in the room. And um, so anyways, we're great. We walk away with this letter, permission to work in Mogadishu. And then we start driving. We're planning to go. Uh, we actually visited a hospital, and um, our firstborn, Aiden, he was, I told you guys about his birth, right? Like, it was so supernatural, but he was born through a C-section, and um, so he, I mean, it was going to be a normal delivery, but then complications, stuff went on, and then the doctor said, actually, we're, we're going to have to do emergency C-section, and we're like, okay, okay, and then I said, ask, can I be there? He said, no, you, you're not allowed to be there, so they sent me to a room, and Marlise had the C-section, and then afterwards, they brought Aiden, our first, our son, to me. And so I never witnessed the C-section or anything. And um, so then it was uh, after that uh, uh, that I was in Mogadishu, and um, they're showing us around this hospital, and then they're showing us with great pride, like, here's our operation rooms. We, we do surgeries, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, here, come, we'll show you. And so they open just one of the operation rooms, and there's a C-section going on right there at that moment. And it was a super primitive third world hospital, very primitive, very rustic. And there's nothing in the room, just this one table, but it looked more like a bench. And there's this woman laying on her back, completely out, like asleep. And she's laying there, her head's hanging, her arms and legs are just hanging. And uh, she's there, and her stomach is cut open. And, um, and this doctor is trying to get the baby out. And he's having a hard time. And so he's standing behind the woman. And there's nobody else there. It's just the, the woman and the doctor. And I look at this, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I don't want to see this. And then he starts talking to me. He's like, hey, visitor, you know, welcome. I'm just doing C-section here. He starts talking to me. And I'm, like, trying to ignore the body of the woman and all the blood and just looking at the guy. And he's working on the woman. He's trying to get her stomach to open further and put some stuff in there to keep the stomach open. And so he's pulling the body, and the ladies, their body's like this on the table. It was nasty. And then all of a sudden, as we're talking, he reaches in, and he pulls the child out. And it's all bloody and dirty. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, they did this to my wife. So intense. Anyways, afterwards, our second, Leon, our daughter, was the normal birth. It was funny because when, um, you know, I've, my parents, 
when I grew up, my parents, they, um, they, talk, they talk to me about sexuality and boys and girls and where babies come from and all that. And I've had to be all biology and classes, school and stuff. So I kind of knew how babies were born. But there's a lot to it, actually. Uh, pregnancy and birth, and it's pretty intense. And so when um, Marlise was pregnant the first time, I decided to read this book, uh, What to Expect When You're Expecting. So I thought, I got to kind of know track with my wife what's going on with the baby and the birth and everything because I didn't have all the details quite right so anyway so I read the book and it's a lot and so then but I was so ready I felt so prepared for the delivery but then it ended up a c-section I wasn't there but then three years later my daughter was born and that time it was a normal birth and I was allowed to be there and I was there but now it had been three years since I read the book and so I, didn't, I couldn't quite remember all the details of the birth and the book. And then the whole moment is so intense. And then comes to the moment of the actual birth and just the intensity of it. And my wife's like crazy, and, but awesome. And she gives birth to my daughter. And then there's like the, um, the string, the line attached to the baby. And the umbilical cord. And I remember that because the guys can cut it. You can cut it. They'll let you cut it. So I remember that. I was like, that's cool. I'm going to cut that string. And then, but then at the end, at the end of that line was another thing that came out. And I just couldn't remember that anymore. And I was so confused. So I asked the doctor, are you going to put that back in my wife? Like, <laughs> but they don't. They don't put that back in. <laughs> just FYI. Anyways, doesn't matter. So we're, <laughs> so I was, we're there in Mogadishu. They're showing us around the hospital. Then we're going to go back to the hotel. Me and my friend. And we start driving, and there's this roadblock, and people are yelling, and there's people they're starting to fight, and we had to leave, and um, so now it gets crazy. All these roads are blocked off, anyway. So we make it back to the hotel late afternoon, and then that evening, my friend and I were sitting on the roof of the hotel, and um, and there was we could see the explosions in the city. We see rockets flying and shooting. It was just all so intense. And um, then the next day, we had to go to the airport back, and we had to drive through that area where they had been fighting that night. And um, we get there, and there's a roadblock. And, <clears throat> and it was kind of intense because they had child soldiers there. And child soldiers are incredibly dangerous because they don't think rationally anymore. They just kill. And because uh, they're typically drugged up, they, their conscience has been so corrupted, and they're so traumatized that you just never know what they're going to do. There's no wisdom or good reasoning with them. They just kill or, or don't kill. They just do whatever they want. And so we're stopped, and there's these two child soldiers, and they're like, I don't know, 10, 12 years old. They're kids. And standing there with big AK-47 guns, and they're stopping us, and they, they're completely covered up. Like their face, sunglasses, black gloves, they're completely black. You don't see any skin. And so there's these little kids, and they stop us, <coughs> and um, <coughs> they start yell. they tell the guy, because all the windows are black, so they tell the, our driver to lower the windows, and they see us in the back, right? Uh, me, I was the only white guy on, on that trip. And they see me, and they start yelling at us, and um, get so intense, and then they, they grab their guns, and they start poking their guns in the car and pointing at, at me, and at this point, you don't know if they're going to shoot or not. And so the lady next to me, because the two women were with me, who the, we were working with, she starts praying. She's a Muslim. I thought, that's not going to help me. And so I thought I should also pray. And I asked, the God, please protect us. Calm these kids down. And uh, they're just yelling, and it just gets more and more intense. And the driver starts yelling, and it's just escalating. And I'm like, God, please calm down. And then all of a sudden, the kids, they just got quiet, and they just walked away, and they let us go. And all the women were like, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, but it was my prayers, not yours. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we, uh, we get to the airship, and we fly back home. 
It's amazing. Brother Andrew, he, he wrote this book called God's Smuggler. And just this missionary hero, and he said this. He said, there's no such thing as a close nation if you're willing not to come back. There's no such thing as a close nation if you're, not, if you're willing not to come back. There's a missionary called Isabel Kuhn. She was a missionary in China and Thailand. And she said this. She said, I believe that in each generation, God has called enough men and women to evangelize all the yet unreached tribes of the earth. It's not God who does not call. It is men who will not respond. It's not God who does not call. It is men who will not respond. There's an organization in Colorado Springs, America. It's called the Joshua Project. They've been there for years. And what they do is they track the advancement of the gospel among unreached people groups. And so we've, like missiologists, we've, we've identified all the yet remaining unreached people groups on the earth. And, um, and we know where they are and which ones are being engaged and which ones are totally unengaged and unreached. And this organization, the Joshua Project, they keep track of all of that. And so there's many names right, still on this list of unreached people groups. And a friend of mine was visiting them one day and he met with this old man, John, who'd been working there for years. And uh, him and John were talking and John, he said to my friend, he said, you know what my favorite thing is about my job? He said, it's when a missionary or some missionary organization calls me and they tell me they've shared the gospel with a people group and, and people have been getting saved and that a people group became a reached people group. And he said, and then I go to our big list, our master list, and I can wipe one name off of the list of unreached people groups. He said, it's the best thing ever. He says, the best thing is my favorite thing about my job. And he said, I regularly get to do it. But then he said this, but then when I look at the remaining names on that list, and then he begins to cry. He's crying. He said, when I look at the remaining names on the list, he says, I realize that it will be a bloody battle to finish the task. You know, I was just talking to somebody during the break. The first one-third of the world was fairly easy to reach. And the second one-third was not so easy. But the remaining unreached people groups, the reason why they are unreached is simply because they're very hard to reach. They're either geographically in very remote places or they're just very resistant towards the gospel and very unwelcoming of missionaries. And so we, but we have to go. We have to finish this task, right? The people do need to know. And, 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 and there's hope, right? We engage with hope. In uh, Matthew 24, 14, I told you guys the first day this. Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the people groups. Then the end will come. Again, he doesn't say the gospel should be preached. He'll say the, the gospel might be preached. He says it will be preached. God's word, the good news, his grace will go forth to all the people groups on the earth. It's going to happen. But it's not going to happen just by itself. There is a way that that happens, right? And it's going to happen through people like you and me who say, yes, Lord, send me. I will go. There is a way that that's going to happen. And you can be a part of it or not. That's your free choice. But the invitation is there. You guys are young. You're students, right? And, and you dream about the future. You think about the future. And many of you guys, you, you came out of school, either it was high school or college or whatever, and, and you're, you're in that student age group, right? Most of you, and you're, you're working towards your future. And some of you are thinking maybe this is a gap here or whatever. And you, you, you have dreams. Most of you have thoughts and dreams about the future, right? And for some of you, that it's the American dream. But also God has a dream. 
he also has a dream. I'm wondering who, and he's wondering. doesn't matter what I wonder. God's wondering who is willing to lay down their own selfish ambitions, their own dreams, and lay hold of the dreams of God. Who will give themselves to the dreams of God? Luke 17, verse 33, it says, Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will preserve it. If you want a rich, a full life, give it all to Christ. Give it all to Christ. Jim Elliott, missionary hero, he says this. He is no fool who gives up when he, what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. In the 1800s, there was a missionary called James Calvert. And um, him and his friends, they had a real heart for missions and praying that God would send laborers to the ends of the earth. And one of the places, the countries they prayed for was Fiji because the people in Fiji were unreached as far as they knew. And um, so they're praying and asking the Lord to send laborers to Fiji. I've never been to Fiji. I would love to go to Fiji. I generally feel called to any beautiful island in the world. And um, I would love to go to Fiji one day. But in those days, in the 1800s, the, the things were a little different. The people that lived in Fiji, some of them were cannibals. And that just changes the whole thing, right? So hard to enjoy the beach from a cooking pot. And uh, so James and his friends, they're praying. Because the people of Fiji still need to hear the gospel. They're praying. They're asking the Lord, God, send missionaries, send laborers to Fiji. And one day they're praying and they realize, gosh, we're praying for God to send others. Maybe we should be the ones to go. We're telling other people to go. And, it, and it's, guys, it's, it's always easier to tell others what to do than to do it yourself, right? And so they felt so convicted and they said, yeah, I, maybe we can be the answer to our own prayers. And they decide, okay, we'll go. James's friends, they said, we'll go to Fiji. We're going to do it. We're not going to talk about it, pray. We're not going to ask other people. We're going to ask the Lord to send others. We will go. We'll be willing. And so they find a captain with a ship who's willing to take them to Fiji and drop them off there. The day comes. They've said their goodbyes. They're packed, and they get onto the ship, and then the captain takes James aside back onto shore, and he's trying to reason with him, like a last-ditch effort to convince him to change his mind to not go. And the captain says this to James. James, don't go. You and your friends will die at the hands of those savages. And James looked the captain into the eyes and he said this. We died before we came here. Christ is our life. What kind of missionary is it going to take to finish the task? Same ones as those who started it. Those who would not love their lives even unto death. People who love the Lord Jesus and are willing to go anywhere for the glory of his name. You know, when, when you got saved, you were maybe told that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it's true. God loves you. He likes you too. He really, really loves you. And he does have a wonderful plan for your life. He may also have a plan for your death. And for some of you, some of you may get the opportunity to make much of the name of Jesus even in your death. You know, the world's ultimate weapon is killing. Our ultimate weapon is dying. We're faithful to God. We die, we win. It will be with God forever in eternity. Guys, we don't have to fear the world. Because God is with us and he saved us. It's interesting in Ephesians, Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He's in prison at that moment. And in Ephesians 3, verse 1, Paul, he's, he's writing to them, and he introduces himself. 
He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ. And it's so cool because he's in prison, but he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. He's like, these guys think they got me, but it's really Jesus who has me. I am his prisoner, not theirs. I belong to Jesus. My life is his. And I love that. You know, Jesus, when, he, when Jesus was on the earth, he said, come to me. All you are weary, and I'll give you rest, right? He, he, he said, anyone. Jesus invites anyone to come to him. And we responded, and we came, and we found rest for our souls. He saved us. But then he sent us out and for some reason we think that the invitation to come to him and get saved is for everyone. But then that, that the command to go is just for the select few and it's not true. All who came are called to go. All who found rest in him, all who are saved are called to now represent him and be faithful witnesses to the ends of the earth. Again, the Great Commission is not an option to consider. It's a command that we obey. It's for all of us. Robert Shannon, he says this, never pity missionaries, envy them. They are where the real action is, where life and death, sin and grace, and heaven and hell converge. You know, the culture lies to you. And the people around you, for the most part, and the culture will push this conversation towards you, telling you to get comfortable and to work hard so you can buy stuff to get comfortable, right? So, and, and, and the more you get, the happier you'll be. And they encourage you to love yourself and take care of yourself and get insurance and try to get out of the bad part of town and get a house in the good part of town to the safe place and stay away from the dangerous people and go try to connect with the right people and, you know, and, and pursue the American dream. Go and make a name for yourself. Go and be rich. Go and be successful. Be comfortable. Save yourself. But that's not what God says. God's dream for your life is not that you get educated so that you can get a job, so that you can make money, so that you can get married and have kids who can then go to school and can get educated and can get a job and can make money so that they can get married and have kids who can go to school and make money and get a job. There's more to life than that. There's more to life than that. You're not called to make a living. You're called to make a difference. You're called to make a difference, all of you. Nate Saint, missionary, killed. He said, people who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. They forget too that they too are expending their lives. And when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they've wasted. Everybody is giving their lives to something. What are you giving your life to? What are you living for? God's calling you to something that's bigger than just your own little stuff. He wants to catch you up into this bigger storyline that's bigger than you. And he has this adventure for you. An incredible life. Because he goes with us, we don't have to fear, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of people, they don't engage in missions because of fear. But the thing with fear is this. Fear will not keep you from dying, but it will keep you from living. It will keep you from truly living. You don't want a life that is, and decisions determined by fear. 
You know, there's a lot of people, they've done this over and over. They do research, they do interviews with people that are about to die, that are terminal in their last stage of life. And they ask them, okay, looking back at your life now, what do you regret? What would you have done differently? And one of the things that always comes up was the unwillingness to take risk. And they said, I, I always chose the safe path. I did what seemed safe, what was comfortable. I was unwilling to take risks. And they say, I'll never know what my life could have been like if I were just willing to risk, if I would just live from my heart instead of falling to expectations and the narrative of culture. Guys, peace is not found in the absence of trouble. It's found in the presence of God. God is with you. Jesus said in this world we will have trouble. That's what he said. It's part of life. We live in a broken world. But he said, take heart. I've overcome the world. He is with you. He's right there with you. And God offers us a life. He offers us something to, to live and die for. He offers us a storyline that gives purpose, that gives meaning to our lives. In the book of Kings, in scripture, there's, there's a story about King David. He was the great warrior king of Israel. And we're, we're coming into land here. The great warrior king of Israel. And it says that in the time of spring, when the kings went to war, he stayed back home. It was the time of the year when he was supposed to lead his armies into battle. And he didn't. He stayed home. And what happened when he stayed home? When he didn't go to fight. He stayed home. That's the moment that he saw that woman and he slept with her, right? That whole incident where he sleeps with another woman and he is tempted and, and he breaks half the Ten Commandments in one episode, King David. And people say, but what about the danger of missions? Guys, I'll tell you this. When God calls you to war, it's more dangerous to stay at home. It's more dangerous to stay at home. It's the safest to be, to be in the center of God's will. And there's a lot of people, the Lord's called them, called them into battle, called them to the nations, but they stay home and are sinning. They're falling apart. Their lives are so meaningless and so comfortable. But they're wasting away their lives. The promise in the Great Commission is his presence. You know, Moses, when God called Moses... It was he left Egypt, right? So God's people are all in Egypt. There's slavery. And he kills some, uh, an Egyptian because he gets mad and because uh, the Egyptian is abusing one of his countrymen. Then he, he flees for his life because they find out, right? Then he spends 40 years in the wilderness. And then all of a sudden, one day, he sees this burning bush and God speaks to him through it. And God says to Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and confront the Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And that was a scary assignment because Egypt was the superpower on the earth. And Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the earth and probably the most demonized person on the earth. The people that were surrounded by him were very demonized people. And so Moses needs to go back and confront this guy and tell him, God says you got to let the people go, which is not what Pharaoh wants. And also Moses left on bad terms. He had to flee for his life. And now he goes back. And so it's understandable that Moses says to God, God, I don't think I can do that. Who am I? I'm not very articulate. I'm not good at this. I can't do this. 
And I think maybe Moses would have wanted to hear God say, oh, no, Moses, you're amazing. Look at yourself. You're strong. You're good. You're articulate. I believe in you. You got this. Ra rah, rah. Go, go, go. You're the man of the hour. It's not what God says. God simply says to Moses, Moses, I'm going to go with you. That was it. Because Moses was not to put his confidence in his ability, but in the presence of God. And then later, so he takes the people out of Egypt. Then Joshua is the one who takes the people into the promised land. And God tells Joshua, because this was again a daunting task. They had to fight these foreign armies, powerful people. And he says to Moses, to Joshua, he says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. He says, for the Lord, your God is with you. And years later, he speaks to us. And he tells you, and he tells me, go into all the world, preaching the good news. And then he gives us the same promise. He says, I will be with you. Who can do this? Maybe you're like, I'm not very articulate. I'm not very gifted. I'm not a good preacher. I don't know the Bible so well. I don't this. You have, may have many, many excuses. And God simply looks at you and says, guys, I'm going to go with you. I'm not saying it's not good to prepare and get equipped. It is. And we can help you with that. But put your confidence in the presence of God. He goes with you. I'm saying all that just to, to tell you that you can do this. You can do this. And there's people who've gone before you that have sat in these very chairs that would sit in a class like this and think all the same thoughts you have. Feel all the same stuff. And many of them, they're in the nations of the earth. And some of them, their tombstones still be written in different languages. They'll live and die fighting for the salvation of these people. Laboring for Jesus to have the reward of his suffering. Guys, we have a big task before us. And us, you guys, you're responsible for your generation. You live in this time. God put you here. And you're a part of this story that he is writing. The ball is in your court. What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to live for? Everybody's going to live their life for something. What are you going to give your life to? What are you going to waste your life on? It's your choice. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray. We're going to end the class early. I want to ask you guys, and if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do this, okay? I want to ask you guys for the next 10 minutes, you can go wherever you want. I want to ask you not to speak to anyone except to Jesus. All right, next 10 minutes, and just talk to the Lord about your life, about your future, about what we've been talking about. And you can stay here. You can go wherever you want. I just want to ask you the next 10 minutes to not speak a word to anybody. I mean, there might be emergencies, then you speak, okay? <laughs> but I want to ask you guys, just in all sobriety, just wait. What, what am I going to give my life to? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my future? Where are my values? What, what am I pursuing in life? What do I care about most? Am I living the way I should or actually want to live? And how would I live if... If I were free, and if I could live from my heart, how would I live if fear would have no influence on my life? 
How would I live if I would live the way I did inside of my dreams? And just talk to the Lord about that. Should we do that? All right, I'm going to pray and then you guys go, okay? Jesus, we hear you. We hear you, Jesus. We've heard your word. You've spoken to us. And we listen, Lord. And I ask now, even just in the next few minutes, Holy Spirit, that you would move on our hearts. God, we don't want to waste our lives on meaningless things. We're yours. Amen. Thank you for watching today's podcast. We hope you are blessed by this message. For more on missions, stay right here on Fire and Fragrance.